Sometimes when you're talking with someone, they will respond with a, kind of a negative view of their own particular life. You say, how are things going? They say, man, I'm stuck in a rut. It's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Stuck in a rut. Of course, we know a rut is, uh, you know, this groove made in the ground often by, uh, by vehicles, and you get stuck in, a, in the mud because there's a deep, rut there and it's picturesque of our lives it speaks of a life that has become boring and predictable like you're on a treadmill and you can't get off i'm stuck in a rut there's no enthusiasm there's no life there's no excitement about life i'm just kind of running on the mill from one day to another not getting anywhere not having any joy and i want to escape but i don't know how I think Vance Havner had maybe the best definition of what a rut is. He said, a rut is nothing more than a grave with the ends knocked out. You see, a rut is not only dull, it's deadly. Especially if you get caught in a rut, like the cycle of sin that Israel experienced in the book of Judges. Turn with me to the book of Judges as we continue our study in the life of Gideon. And I want to remind you of that vicious cycle that is described in the book of Judges, a cycle that has four movements to it and is repeated six different times in the book, a book that covers a period of about 350 years. It was after the conquest of Joshua, and now there was no Moses, and there was no Joshua, and there was no one to lead. And because there was no king in Israel, no leadership in Israel, Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And so this cycle was repeated. The four movements of the cycle, it starts out with the idea of rebellion or sin. This is where the people of God go against the will of God. They started out by serving and worshiping only Jehovah, and then they began to acquire the idols and the gods of the nations around them. And they began to serve other gods. The rebellion and sin brought them into the next movement, which is oppression, captivity. Many of the nations around them began to control them, and the nations they were supposed to drive out now were their lords. The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Midianites. These nations came in and took control. Sometimes it was a period of seven years, sometimes a period of 40 years. And the bondage, the oppression, seems to increasingly get more difficult as they go further and further away from the Lord. By the way, if we don't deal with problems in our life, they don't go away, they just usually become more difficult, and other problems are added to them, and it's a downward spiral. The third movement is prayer, supplication. They cry out to God, Lord, help! When things get desperate, God's people pray. Isn't it sad that often God's people don't pray until things get desperate? That's the nature of the beast. We've been doing it for so long. We, we've been following the Lord for many years. We just kind of know. Second nature. It's old hat. We know how to do church. We know how to live the Christian life. We hardly need God. Until things get bad, and then we pray. 
Which leads me to think that God allows things to get bad so that we can learn to pray. Vicious cycle. But when the people of God cry out, God responds with deliverance. That's the fourth and final movement. He sends in a period of peace, a, a time of liberty and freedom. But unfortunately, they go right back into the vicious cycle again. Here's a great definition of what a rut is. Pattern behavior, particular behavior, predictable behavior. It's boring, it's dull, it's deadly. There's no life in it. And this is a sinful cycle. And I'm afraid many people who name the name of Christ when they say, I'm in a rut, would often have to confess, my life looks a lot like the book of Judges. Let's turn to Judges chapter 6 because we want to see something of this cycle in this series on the life of Gideon. We want to see something of the tragedy in the life of Gideon, uh, but first the triumph uh, in the life of Gideon. Really, the whole narrative is filled with this up and down response because of the cycle or this up and down experience. But in verse 1, you have step number 1 in that cycle, don't you? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judges 6 and verse 1. They rebelled. They went after other gods. And immediately, step number 2 is invoked. For seven years, God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Please understand this. The, the language in the Scripture is very consistent. God gave them up, or God gave them over. God gave them over. But God never gave up on them. And those are two different things. God will sometimes give you up to the consequences of your own sinful choices. God will give you up to the difficulties you face if you're not willing to turn those difficulties and sanctify them into times of prayer and dependence upon him. God will give you up to the Canaanites and the Midianites that you've not driven out of the land, to those sins that you've not driven out of your heart. Although God will give you up, he will never give up on you. And that's what Gideon is going to find out. So in chapter 6, we read that this time of captivity was harsh. Midian was so powerful, so oppressive, that the Israelites lived in caves. They had to hide from these raiders who came in every harvest. The scriptures tell us, verse 3, whenever the crops were planted, that's when they would show up, and they would bring the Amalekites and other eastern people with them. And they would plant their tents in the valleys, and they would occupy the land, and they looked like swarms of locusts. They would descend with so many that you couldn't count them on camels, which we mentioned this is the first documented use of camels in any type of military operation. And it was very daunting because these people riding on camels are lifted up, and, and they're coming in with speed. They're coming in with great force to ravage the land. I tell you, it was so oppressive that finally, after seven years, isn't that interesting? <laughs> they cried out to God. Why not cry out after year one? And the repetition happened. I mean, they would come in during harvest time and take out the crops, which made for a very hard winter, and they'd plant again next year. The same thing would happen seven times. 
but they cried out to God. I, I like the Hebrew word that is used in verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. It's repeated in verse 7 when the Israelites cried to the Lord. It's a word that means to shriek. It has volume connected to it as well as deep emotion. Think of a town crier who with volume wants to shriek out a message for the people to understand. Or maybe better yet, Think of a baby who wants its milk. Letting out a cry with such persistence and such passion. This cry has in its heart grief and pain and depression and all of those other things coupled with sorrow. They cried out to the Lord. And my friend, I simply want you to know that when you pray with real passion and you connect that passion with real faith, God shows up. God responds. God answers your prayer. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered because we don't offer them. Sometimes we offer them and they're not answered because there's no passion to them. It was Thomas Brooks, the old Puritan, who said, cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. So you offer your prayer, but there's not any faith in it. There's not any emotion to it. No wonder it's never answered. But if you pray in faith, and you pray with all of your heart, and you pray to the living God, believing that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, God will answer your prayer. And Judges chapter 6 is proof, proof positive of that. They were passionate. They prayed and God responded. He sent them, first of all, a prophet. This is an unnamed prophet, verse 8. The prophet said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And he reminds them. By the way, this is the same verbiage, the same message that we find in chapter 2 coming from the angel of the Lord. The Lord God of Israel said, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you, and I gave you this land. I said, don't have any other gods but me. But you did not listen. And therein lies the root cause, the real problem. This was the mitigating circumstance. This is what brought about their horrible, deplorable condition. And God's word is prophetic. God's word, when we open it up, opens up our own heart. And we can see sometimes our own motives. And we can see why our sin brings upon consequences. God defines what sin is and points to our own weakness and our own disobedience. The word of God reveals to us our own situation. It is prophetic. But the word of God is also given to, not just to correct, but to encourage. And that's why the angel of the Lord shows up. This is verse 11. So you've got the prophet speaking correction and the angel speaking encouragement. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. Now, this angel did not have a halo. There were no wings there was no glowing presence about him. Looked like a person, just a man, just an individual. He came and sat down under the oak tree where 
a guy by the name of Gideon was threshing wheat. This oak was in Ophrah, the one that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, and that helps us to know something about his father. We're going to learn uh, the fact that the father apparently had given up hope in Jehovah and had turned to the Baals, the, the gods of the, of the nations around them. And he's an Abizrite, which means he's from the tribe of Manasseh, uh, that half-tribe that had its inheritance on the west side of the Jordan, not the half-tribe that had its inheritance on the east side. We understand most likely that his home is somewhere in the valley of Jezreel, and it's going to be very near where the battle takes place in the next chapter. But here is this guy named Gideon. The angel appears to Gideon. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now that tells us a lot of things. First of all, he doesn't appear to be a very brave individual. I think he's probably given up hope already at this point in time because he thinks God has abandoned them. Maybe he's contemplating serving the new gods that his father has introduced or embraced, the gods of Baal. He certainly is hoping that the Midianites don't find out what he's doing. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. Wine press is often a hidden place, protected, guarded. It's kind of a scooped out stone where the grapes are placed and they're trampled and then there's a trough so the juice can flow into a cistern and they make wine. But you thresh wheat on a hill, on a high place where it's exposed so the wind can take away the chaff. And the result is you've got the grain that you can work and make into food. But he's hiding while he's making the food. Whatever he was doing wasn't going to yield a whole lot. And it seems to be counterproductive almost. He's just doing this to survive. I think he's a very discouraged individual who wouldn't be living in a situation like that. And it's to this discouraged individual that the angel has an amazing message. Let me kind of divide the message into two major parts. First of all, when God responds to our prayers, he wants to change our perspective. He wants to change our view of the world, both of how we view God and the conditions around us and how we view ourselves. But in this case, he first of all wants to talk to Gideon about the future. He wants to change his perspective about what's going to happen in the future. Gideon's given up. God hasn't. And so he says to him, when the angel comes to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I think the first thing Gideon is thinking is, who are you talking to? Mighty warrior. In fact, this word seems to be a little ironic, if not even a bit sarcastic. Hey, mighty warrior. He's hiding He's cowering. He's afraid. Hey, mighty warrior. I mean, that's like when I do something stupid and my friends say to me, way to go, Einstein. It's not because they think I'm intelligent. We're comparing you with one of the greatest minds in the world. No, they're saying what I've done is so different than the reputation of this man. The contrast is unbelievable. It's sarcasm. I think the Lord is using that a little bit when he says... 
Hey, mighty warrior. Gideon's response is amazing because he acknowledges that he's nothing like a mighty warrior. But in God's word, it's not just irony he's after, it's future. He wants Gideon, he wants Gideon to see what can happen when a man yields himself to God. He wants us to envision what's going to happen when people, the people of God, believe the word of God and act it out. I think this phrase, mighty warrior, is what God plans to do in the life of Gideon, and indeed that's what's going to happen in chapter 7. He's going to become a mighty warrior. He's not that now, but he will be. It's the whole idea of future potential. And too often you and I think about our own situation, and we, our minds get clouded with the conditions around us, and we evaluate what's happening, and we begin to believe lies about God and us. And we live our life in that rut because we can't see anything different. And God says, I want you to lift up your eyes from the rut and see that you can be a mighty warrior. During vacation Bible school, it's really neat to walk through the halls of this church and see over 300 kids being taught by some of you. And they're so excited and they're having such a good time And I like to look at those kids and think, look at the potential here. Look at the mighty warriors. Look at the kids that are going to grow up and be missionaries and pastors and great moms and dads and build Christ's church in the next generation. Think of the potential. Now, often we don't see that. Instead of angels, we see demons, you know, (laughs) their activity and their response. We can't control them. Parents get so frustrated with their kids, and they don't step back and say to their young child, mighty warrior, God's got a great future for you. I think we often spend our time dashing hopes instead of encouraging vision, of being pessimistic. You say, I'm a realist. No, you're a pessimist. A realist says, yeah, the Midianites are around us, but God is greater than the Midianites. Greater is he who is in me than the one who is in the world. The Christian is supposed to be characterized by triumph. We're more than conquerors. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. So I I think sometimes we don't have the right perspective about what God wants to do in and through us in the future. Remember Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God says, I know the plans that I have you have for you. These are plans that God is revealing to Israel in the midst of difficult captivity. My plans are to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Have you ever read what God plans to do with you if you're a Christian and to do with his church in the days ahead? Yeah, the difficulty around us is sometimes daunting, but the victory is certain. And we've got to think about what God has said and not evaluate the circumstance wrongly. The harsh reality of life and the apparent contradiction with Scripture as we view things today often fills our hearts and minds with despair. 
and we begin to question God. That's exactly what Gideon does. The angel of the Lord says, I'm with you, you're a mighty warrior. Verse 13, Gideon replies, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? It's, it's interesting when you study, uh, the Hebrew scholars study verse 13, the response is translated in many different ways. The new NIV now translates verse 13 like this. Pardon me, sir, or pardon me, Lord, but if you're with us, how come bad things are happening to us? Which is a common question, right? I suppose if you were to put that in the modern vernacular, instead of pardon me, we might say something like this. Come again? Mighty warrior? Say what? What are you trying to say? I'm nothing like that. And the Lord says, I know, but that's what you can be, and that's what you should be. Gideon's response is filled with unbelief. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the signs and the wonders? The language of unbelief is always asking, why, why, where, where? And then it concludes, God has abandoned us, the last part of verse 13. God has left us. And frankly, when you look at the church in the 21st century, that seems to be the conclusion that many Christians have come to. God has left us. One court ruling, and we're losing. One broken relationship, and God is no, nowhere to be seen. One prayer request that doesn't seem to be answered like we want it to be answered, and God's abandoned us. And we're ready to give up hope. So the Lord not only wants to change Gideon's perspective about the future, he wants to change Gideon's perspective about the present. For he says to him in verse 14, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Now, it doesn't appear that he has any strength. Remember, he's the coward. He's convinced God's gone. But what he doesn't realize is that God has infused him with strength as a believer. In the New Testament, this theology is really developed. Go in the strength you have. You know what that means to every New Testament believer? You and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We have residing in us the person of Jesus Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The benediction that Paul gives to the Ephesians is so amazing. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you think or imagine. Now that's a lot. But this God can do all of that according to his power that is at work in you. Where's the power of God at work? In you. Where does the power of God reside? In you. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit. And it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. To Peter, he said, all that you need for life and godliness is in you. Go with the strength you have. You and I need to be more aware of what God has already given to us instead of always asking for more. Maybe we should be asking, Lord, 
let that which I already possess dominate me and control me. So he needed a new perspective. Now Gideon's response is very, really interesting. He says, pardon me again, verse 15, pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Who am I? I mean, you go to the tribe, and Manasseh is not the greatest tribe, and you go to the clan, and I'm from a weak clan, and you go to the family, and I'm of the weakest family. I mean, I've got nothing to offer. And that's when God says, you're exactly where I want you to be, because now I can use you. I'm not sure this is genuine humility. Maybe it's just an excuse. Remember Moses said, I can't speak. Why should I go and deliver the people? But God's got a response to that too. I'm not looking for great people to do great things. I'm looking for weak, weak people to do amazing things. Because in your weakness, my power will be on display. And as we're going to see in the battle of Gideon, it's the smaller numbers that end up giving greater glory to God. Gideon, you're going to be a deliverer. And you may not be much, but when I team up with you, amazing things will happen. C.S. Lewis said, hardships, difficulties, are God's design, God's plan to prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. And I wish every believer could grasp that. You, you're not going to do something maybe as amazing as Gideon did. Maybe you will. But God has a goal for you. He wants you to be an amazing believer, a faithful believer, a mighty warrior in some area of his work. And you can't do it alone, and you realize you're nothing. But once you realize you're nothing and God is everything, then go forward in that strength. Go forward in the confidence that he will accomplish his purpose in and through you. I think believers often have very poor self-image. We talk in psychology a lot about a poor self-image, and people try to build one another up by saying things that often aren't true. But a balanced biblical image is what you need. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't think more lowly of yourself than you ought to think. Think biblically. And God has called you to be his child and he's filled you with his amazing power and he wants to do something amazing in and through you. That's the message. So not only did God want Gideon's perspective to be changed, secondly, he wanted to give Gideon some amazing promises. And it starts out with the promise of his presence. Yeah, Gideon, you may be weak, you may be useless, you may be from the smallest family, but verse 16, I will be with you. So you can go strike down the Midianites. Remember, they're awesome in their power. Pastor Doug read from Psalm 46, God is our refuge. The God of Jacob is with us. Let me encourage you as you do your Bible reading to jot down those references that speak about the presence of Christ and the blessings that accrue to the child of God who's walking in God's presence. You know what God wants from you? He wants you to 
love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with God. That means consciously aware of his presence. And I would encourage you to take those references when you're doing your Bible reading that speak about the presence of God and the blessings that come to every child of God who recognizes God's presence and write them down in the back of your Bible so that you can just look at those verses from time to time and be reminded that when you are in the presence of God, there is joy. When you're in the presence of God, there is stability. When you're in the presence of God, fear is gone and there's boldness. All of this comes from being in the presence of God. Gideon, I will be with you. Now at this point, Gideon responds, I think recognizing that this visitor is unusual. I don't think yet he knows it's the Lord. You say, well, he's going to give him an offering. Well, the word, Hebrew word for offering in verse 18 could simply mean a gift giving to, given to some uh, great individual. So Gideon is asking for a sign. We'll talk more about a sign and about Gideon's fleece a little bit later, but Gideon asked for a sign. He wants confirmation. And so um, he says, please don't go away. Let me present a gift to you. And the Lord says, this is amazing, in verse 18, the Lord says, I'll wait. Divine patience always astounds me. I mean, doesn't it get to you that God allows six cycles of this vicious rebellion and captivity and prayer and deliverance? Divine patience is amazing. Hasn't God been patient with you? I often think if discipline were meted out by the Lord like he did to Annas, Ananias and Sapphira in the church, one little lie and you were a goner? We wouldn't have to build a very big auditorium to hold the congregation on Sunday morning. And there'd be no pastor here to preach. God's amazingly gracious and patient with us. So Gideon goes, verse 19, and he prepares a young goat and an ephah of flour. By the way, that's about 35 or 40 pounds. Remember, they weren't getting much produce from their little work in the wine press, and the Gideons had taken much of it away. That had to be just about everything they had. And they made bread, and they put meat in a basket and had broth. You had your rolls and your soup and your entree. The gift of a meal was brought to this special visitor and the angel of the Lord, still unbeknownst to Gideon, said, take the meat, the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, pour out the broth. Probably the broth was poured on the gift, the food, much like Elijah would later do, pouring the water on the sacrifice. Gideon did what he was told. Verse 21, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire flared from the rock again, very Elijah-like. It consumed the meat. It consumed the bread. And I think Gideon's first thought must have been, there goes everything I had. But then the angel of the Lord disappeared, and when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, now he knows that this is Yahweh himself, that God has appeared to me. He ex exclaimed in fear, Sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and it was well known in Israel, no man can see the Lord and live. Remember Exodus 19 and 20? You can't see God and survive. But then an audible voice comes to Gideon, verse 23, peace. Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. And so Gideon built an altar 
to the Lord. And he called it, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. And to this day it stands. That is the day when this story was first recorded. The altar could still be seen. I don't know if Gideon had part in building the altar of his dad to Baal, but here's an altar to Jehovah. All the other altars to God had been torn down. It was time to raise up another one. And the Lord said, Gideon, I'm giving you my presence and I'm giving you my peace. You're not going to die. Times are going to be difficult, but I'm going to give you a peace far greater than anything that you're going to uh, be confronted with. Understand this, the Bible doesn't teach anything even close to prosperity theology when you understand the, the whole totality of Scripture. Oh, you can rip a verse out of context and think that if you're godly, that means you're going to be wealthy and healthy, but you can't find that from studying all of the Bible. In fact, an understanding of Scripture tells us that all who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer what? Persecution. And through much tribulation, you have to experience and confront to get to the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom. And you were appointed to difficulties like the ones you're facing. God might give you up to difficult times, but he will never give up on you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's why you and I can have the presence of Christ and the peace of Christ. When Jesus was leaving this world and he told his disciples so in the upper room discourse, remember they were filled with fear. And Jesus had to say to them, peace I leave with you. It's my peace I give to you. And then he contrasted it to the world. It doesn't have the same quality of the world's peace. The world's peace is temporary, short-lived. It's weak. It cannot sustain you. But I give you my peace. So don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. In the midst of the tribulation, yes. Why? I have overcome the world, and you're on my side. And that's the message that is slowly beginning to capture the imagination of this farmer named Gideon who thought that God had abandoned him and was contemplating worshiping the God of Baal until he heard the prophetic word of God and he heard the encouraging word of God and he embraced the truth that with Christ we can do amazing things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this message is for me this morning. My heart needs to take its eyes off of the rut and replace it back on the sovereign God who's in complete control. Lord, often we are the ones who get so discouraged and depressed because the affairs of this life seem to take control of us. And we're convinced that you have abandoned us. Give us a fresh vision of who you are and what you promise. Change our perspective and may we walk faithfully with you every day of our life. And Lord, as we go from this place, I pray that we will go in the power of Christ, that we will go with our eyes lifted up and encouraged and conscious 
that wherever we go, Jesus is with us step by step. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his throne with great joy to the only wise God, our Lord and Sovereign and Savior, to him be glory forever and ever. And the people of God said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.